Welcome to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Victor Boomer-Thomas, who is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of London, former director of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and the author of Empire in Retreat, The Past, Present, and Future of the United States. We'll be talking about his book and his thoughts on the decline or retreat of U.S. empire. I believe he's also fluent in Spanish, so Muchas gracias por acompañarnos a nuestro programa Geopolítica y Imperio, Dr. Bulmer Thomas. Gracias. Now, let's start with uh, your definition of empire. You stated that no country in history has ever achieved true global domination, but that both Britain and the U.S. have achieved semi-global empire, is what you call it. And in your book, you cite uh, the foremost scholar of American empire, as you see it, Charles Mayer, and his definition, which is, quote, Empire is a form of political organization in which the social elements that rule in the dominant state create a network of allied elites in regions abroad who accept subordination in international affairs in return for the security of their position in their own administrative unit or periphery. They intertwine their economic resources with the dominant power, and they accept and even celebrate a set of values and tastes that privilege the culture of the mother country. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on how you view the idea of empire As an American myself, I evolved from being completely unaware that I was a citizen of empire to becoming somewhat of an anti-imperialist. And now I don't know what to think uh, anymore um, because there's never really been a time in human history without societies perhaps organized around some form of empire. They do some good, they do some bad. Can you help us try understand uh, how we should think about empire and the definition of empire? Well, I think the first thing is to try and look at it objectively rather than using empire in a pejorative fashion. And since we've had so many empires, several hundred in recorded history, it should be possible to come to a working definition which most people can agree on. And in that situation, I think we should accept right from the start that empire is not limited to territory. It may involve territory and usually has done in the past, but it's not limited to that. So, for example, if you think of the British Empire, which was famous for its territorial extent, it clearly involved a lot more than territory because there were countries that were nominally sovereign, but where uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom had extensive powers, either formally or informally. Essentially, empire is a situation where country A has an influence over country B in a way that country B does not over country A. It's a recognition, if you like, of the asymmetry of power in international relations. But that's, of course, not quite a sufficient explanation of empire. You have to go a bit beyond that. And the quotation that you read from Charles Mayer, the one that I use in my book, I think sets out very clearly that notion of asymmetry in uh, power relations that lies at the root of, uh, of empire. Now, you've said that the formal birth of the U.S. empire began from the very beginning. Uh, in your book, you say 1783 with the Treaty of Paris or the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which set a precedent for territorial expansion. Other historians that um, we've interviewed on the podcast, such as Stephen Kinzer, uh, in his latest book, he, he says that the empire began in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. And yet others uh, say in 1945 after World War II, which I think is a bit late. Why do you say from the beginning uh, it was an empire? 
I do. I feel very strongly about that. Uh, of course, I'm not the only one. There's an, an American scholar called uh, Professor Nugent who wrote a very compelling book on uh, empire in the, immediately after independence. So I'm following in that tradition. And essentially, the argument is, is quite a simple one. Uh, but before I explain it, let me say that it's not unique. There are plenty of other countries that have... Uh, uh, fought for their independence against another imperial power and have then immediately become empires themselves. So Brazil, for example, having gained its independence from Portugal in 1822, immediately declared itself to be an empire. Haiti did the same uh, after uh, winning its independence from France. Uh, Mexico did the same for a couple of years after winning its independence from Spain. So th this is not unique. Now, in the case of the United States, what made it such a what made the Treaty of Paris so crucial is that in 1783 the 13 colonies that had now won their independence effectively uh, occupied only the land east of the Appalachian Mountains. The land west of it was, as far as uh, effective occupation concerned, it belonged to the various. Uh, Native American uh, uh, nations with some uh, uh, settlers from uh, uh, France, but none really from uh, Great Britain itself. So through skillful negotiation at the Treaty of Paris, the uh, U.S. negotiators managed to gain the agreement of France Spain and Great Britain to occupy this vast area between the on the west of the Appalachian Mountains going all the way to the uh, Mississippi River, land which they had not previously occupied and which in, in which they specifically been forbidden to occupy by King George III and which they had to decide what to do with. And essentially the model that they adopted was the imperial model, a model in which you create territories or colonies, if you like, in which the, uh, the central power, i.e. the federal government, then appoints the governor, the judge, the administrative uh, officials, and there is very limited, uh, if any, democratic representation for the white settlers who then gradually move in. Of course, there was no representation at all for the Native Americans. For me, something that, well, you know, I'm a Caucasian, white, I guess, European, although I'm a Slav ethnically, and there are some things, I guess, that I, I've overlooked, um, and this underlying, I guess, um, what, what you describe in your book, let me read some of the quotes. So, the most infamous system of colonial government that was ever seen on the face of the globe, and it is a strange thing that the fathers of our American Republic established a colonial government as much worse than that which they revolted against, as one form of such government can be worse than another. Uh, but then you go on to cite, I believe, Lieutenant Colonel Ethan Hitchcock describing the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, um, which is, uh, we can see back then there was this echo of this uh, American exceptionalism and uh, racism. He says that, quote, our people ought to be damned for the impudent arrogance and domineering presumption. I have said from the first that the U.S. are the aggressors. We've outraged the Mexican government and people by an arrogance and presumption that deserve to be punished. For 10 years, we have been enroaching on Mexico and insulting her. But now I see the U.S. as a people are undergoing changes in character and the real status and principles for which our forefathers fought are fast being lost sight of. You cite manifest, end quote, you cite manifest des destiny as an ideological, racist, and quasi-religious doctrine. And one more quote, you 
write from John Calhoun, who denounced U.S. annexation of Mexican land because, quote, we have never dreamt of incorporating into our union any but the Caucasian race, the free white race. To incorporate Mexico would be the very first instance of the kind of incorporating an Indian race. I protest against such a union as that. Ours, sir, is the government of a white race, end quote. So, you know, there's there's a lot of coming to terms uh, with this history. Uh, how should we view early U.S. history and empire in, in light of, um, you know, the genocide of the, I don't know, how, do we call it the genocide of the Native American people, uh, and so on? Well, let's take that first quote that you used, which was actually from uh, a member of the House of Representatives of Montana when it was still a territory and before it became uh, a state. Um, the interesting thing about that is that he is using the language of uh, colonial subjects uh, around the world in relation to uh, the imperial power, in this case, uh, the United States um, government. But that could equally have been stated by a representative of, let's say, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the political bodies in Martinique or in uh, uh, Malaya or somewhere like that. In other words, the, the sentiments that he's expressing as a colonial subject of the U.S. government are exactly the same as that that would have been expressed by colonial subjects in other parts of the world in relation to other imperial powers. And I think that's what makes that quote particularly interesting. But that quote is actually quite late. I think it's from the 1880s. What's also interesting is that even in the 1780s, in other words, immediately after the Treaty of Paris, you have colonial officials, I mean, U.S. officials, using the language of empire when talking about the territories that they are uh, responsible for. So Governor Claiborne in uh, Louisiana, soon after uh, that became a uh, territory of the United States, after the Louisiana Purchase in 1804, he uses that language. Similarly, the governors responsible for the Northwest Territory, the first, if you like, uh, colony of the uh, newly independent United States, they use that similar uh, language. And they also use the word empire very freely. I mean, this is where I think uh, the only reason, where, area where I would disagree with uh, uh, Hitchcock, the other person, the, the U.S. Uh, military official that you quote, because he talks, uh, sorry, it's, oh yes, it is, it is Hitchcock, who talks about a kind of... Um, Nirvana, a, a kind of period in which the founding fathers uh, were dominant, in which uh, this was a pure republic without any kind of imperial overturns. Well, obviously, I don't agree with that, because in my view, right from the start, this was an imperial project, and the founding fathers, without exception, were very free with the word empire in describing what it was that they were trying to build. We can fast forward... Um a little bit where something interesting you detail uh, in your book, the central role philanthropic foundations and think tanks play in providing the intellectual foundations for the U.S. empire. You mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which was formed, I forget the year, the 19-teens, um, 1914 perhaps, uh, RAND Corporation, Brookings. Uh, could you tell us more about the role of these think tanks? Uh, yes, and, and just before I do, I think it's worth stressing that um, uh, you cannot run a successful empire 
without the support of numerous non-state actors. So uh, empire is an exercise in state power, clearly. Uh, that's, you, you, you obviously have to have the state involved. But if the, all the non-state actors are either opposed or uh, uninterested or don't buy into the imperial project, it will soon uh, get into trouble. Uh, and so the role of non-state actors in providing support for empires around the world, not just the United States one, has been absolutely uh, crucial. And so turning then to your particular question on think tanks, uh, the, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations was founded in 1920, the same year as the uh, uh, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, of which I was uh, the uh, director. So they were uh, always thought of themselves as sister institutes. They still do. And just as uh, the Royal Institute had a strong uh, role in supporting the British Empire, so the Council of Foreign Relations uh, played that role, that same role, in relation to the uh, United States Empire. Uh, so it was for, formally independent, formally independent. Uh, it, that is to say, it, it couldn't be described as an organ of government, but nonetheless, in its whole ethos, in the way in which it approached uh, international relations, in the way in which it dealt with the U.S. government, uh, it was very much a supportive element in the U.S. Uh, imperial project. You also describe American multinational corporations as key to the semi-global empire. Uh, indeed, Iran, for example, was overthrown in 1953 for, well, British petroleum and Guatemala in 1954 for the United Fruit Company. Uh, what is most important for us to understand regarding, as you mentioned, non-state actors, so think tanks, and uh, now these multinational corporations, and they're uh, working together with the empire? Uh, obviously, when the U.S. empire started, the, the role of multinational corporations was non-existent because there were no multinational corporations. So the empire established itself long before multinational companies. The first U.S. multinationals really date to the uh, last quarter of the 19th century. Uh, but very quickly, they became uh, extremely influential, uh, both as lobbyists, for their interests, and indeed as supporters of the uh, imperial project itself. Because it's worth remembering, of course, that uh, the United States, by the end of the 19th century, had become an exporter of capital. But there were no uh, very little uh, territories outside of North America uh, that were not controlled by European imperial powers. So the U.S. multinationals had a strong interest in working with the U.S. government to try and break down the barriers to um, the export of uh, U.S. capital to different parts of the world. Inevitably, their initial focus was on Latin America because that had ceased to be, with the exception, obviously, of uh, Cuba that had ceased to, and Puerto Rico, that had ceased to be uh, 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 controlled by uh, European uh, imperial powers. So it was only natural that the U.S. government and the U.S. multinationals should project their power outside of North America 
into uh, Latin America and the Caribbean uh, initially. And that exercise was so successful from their point of view that, of course, it then uh, was replicated in other parts of the world, especially in uh, Asia Pacific and later in the Middle East. Furthermore, you talk about the use of religion and churches in the service of empire, which is nothing new in, in history, but uh, as well as NGOs, which I think is uh, a new development in, in this new form of empire. Um, I believe today, you know, uh, the U.S. around the world sometimes uses a network of NGOs. Uh, people call it the color revolutions, which undermine perhaps foreign governments, not pliable to U.S., uh, whether it's U.S. interests or the U.S. multinational interests. Uh, what can you add as to the importance of the use of this additional tool or weapon of NGOs or, or, or churches to the imperial project? Well, uh, this is a very sensitive issue because obviously uh, some of these NGOs see themselves as anti-imperialist and certainly not engaged in uh, supporting U.S. empire or anything like that. Uh, and, and one mustn't therefore assume just because uh, an NGO is a U.S. NGO that therefore it's somehow in the service of uh, U.S. empire. But many of them are, um, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, in some cases, uh, it's clearly conscious. I mean, the role that the Ford Foundation played in the extension of U.S. empire in uh, Asia-Pacific region and indeed in Latin America during the Cold War is has been demonstrated many, many times. So uh, that's a huge uh, evidential literature on that. If we look at the churches, uh, the role of the evangelical churches uh, in uh, pushing uh, what you might call a U.S. agenda uh, in um, uh, parts of the world outside of the U.S., and one that is very supportive of uh, the U.S. imperial project was also it has also been demonstrated in in many many ways. And as you said in your your earlier comment, I mean, uh, for empires to be backed and supported by uh, uh, churches and uh, think tanks and so on is not strange in any way at all. If you if you're writing a history of the French Empire or the British Empire uh, or the Belgian Empire or earlier on the Italian Empire or before that the German Empire, you would definitely be talking about uh, churches and uh, and uh, other uh, non-governmental organizations. So the fact that in the case of the U.S. Empire, there was also this role played by NGOs, including religious organizations, should be of no surprise to anybody, provided that you accept that the United States uh, was and is an empire. Another aspect is the media. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned in your book, uh, you know, <clears throat> organizations such as Associated Press and Reuters and how the U.S. government was, I guess, having a certain amount of control over uh, media uh, and that the UNESCO, I, uh, I think, convened a meeting to challenge or question U.S. dominance. And that was one reason that U.S. Uh, left UNESCO. What are your thoughts on the media back then as well as uh, today? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, but certainly, if you like, in the heyday of the U.S. empire, before it began its retreat, and I imagine later on we'll be talking about that, the, what today we would call the mainstream media uh, played an extremely uh, powerful 
and supportive role. And that was true of the uh, main uh, uh, outlets in the United States, such as the New York Times. Uh, but it was also true of some of the smaller, uh, more uh, regionally focused uh, uh, newspapers as well. And it was backed up by the role of radio and the television. And I'm not just talking about things like Voice of America, the actual state-controlled um, organizations in the media, but I'm talking about non-governmental organizations. There was, if you like, a symbiotic relationship between uh, <coughs> the, the state and the non-state actors when it came to this projection of U.S. power outside of the United States. In your book, you cover the U.S. empire's expanse from Africa to the Pacific and Latin America. And, you know, that's another re reason I recommend this uh, book to, to listeners because, I mean, it goes into detail, but it's one of the best I've read on the subject because it's, it's easy to read. It's well-researched and it really covers the, the expanse. And, you know, lately we've had the migration crisis coming from Latin America, Central America, including countries such as Honduras and Nicaragua. And these countries are failed states with high inequality, poverty, crime, drug trafficking, uh, high rates of homicide. Uh, and it seems, I, I don't know if we could argue that it's a result of the past U.S. Uh, imperial interventions. What are, and there's a lot of debate going on about this right now um, in Mexico, in the U.S., how can, do you think the U.S. help remedy the situation in Central America with its former client states or, or protectorates? Well, it can do a lot, but above all, it needs to stop um, uh, doing uh, what it has been. Uh, if you take the case of Honduras, for example, uh, which for decades uh, was a U.S. protectorate, uh, and uh, arguably is so even today. What the United States did is first uh, uh, facilitated the removal of uh, uh, an, an elected president, uh, albeit uh, under uh, a very um, uh, murky uh, uh, circumstances. I'm talking about President Zelaya. And then uh, uh, colluded in the election of uh, the current president uh, in circumstances which were frankly um, involved electoral fraud. Now, it, that sort of intervention is extremely unhelpful because it has contributed to uh, your uh, definition of Honduras as a, as a failed state. Um, so the first thing to do is to have the same set of rules for all countries and not bend them just because a country has been willing to slavishly follow the U.S. line in, in foreign policy. Uh, but the second issue is that given its, uh, the enormous size of its economy and uh, uh, the vast volume of uh, its imports, there are thousands of ways in which the uh, U.S. government could uh, facilitate uh, much improved economic conditions in Honduras and lead to uh, greater job creation for particularly for young people, those under the age of uh, 25. And that would um, uh, in turn help to reduce the uh, flow of um, out migration. And getting back to another key point uh, of your book, after World War II, the U.S. empire switched from territorial control to a financial and 
what you spend a lot of time discussing, the institutional form of control. Uh, and here's just a quote, no other country has ever t undertaken such a vast commitment over such a large area of the world, and it would not have been possible without control of institutions at the global and regional level, end quote. Uh, and Bretton Woods, uh, the Bretton Woods system or institutions was the core of this framework that America built to manage the overseas empire. So uh, what is key to note um, about this historically new form of empire through institutions? Well, this is a very interesting transition because as you, as you rightly say, uh, it is fairly unique. Um, uh, towards the end of the 19th century, the territories or colonies on the mainland of North America were being gradually absorbed into the U.S. government as new states. And so once they become states rather than territories, they cease to be colonies. That, by the way, is not unique because um, that has happened in the case of uh, other empires. If you look, for example, in the case of the French Empire, how after the Second World War, uh, places like Martinique, Guadeloupe, La Guyane, Réunion, they were incorporated, even Algeria actually at an earlier stage, they were incorporated into metropolitan France, not as colonies, but as actual um, full participants in the, uh, in the uh, imperial state. So that's not unusual. Uh, there are plenty of other examples of empires doing this. But what it meant is that... Uh, the U.S. territorial empire then was starting to shrink. Uh, but at the same time, U.S. power uh, was expanding. And so uh, even before the First World War, and certainly uh, at the League of Nations afterwards, the United States governments were seeking ways in which they could uh, control and influence uh, world affairs uh, without necessarily uh, controlling territory. Interestingly enough, uh, at the League of Nations uh, conference, uh, the United States did contemplate taking uh, mandates uh, in the same way that Britain and France and uh, Japan did after the First World War. Uh, and had it done so, it would have taken a mandate, uh, interestingly enough, in, uh, in, uh, in Armenia, uh, which is probably just as well it didn't in view of... Uh, 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 later events. But um, the, the point is that already the U.S. Uh, under Woodrow Wilson and subsequently were looking at ways in which they could uh, maintain and expand U.S. power without necessarily relying on territory. Now, it didn't work because the United States uh, didn't uh, 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 join the, the League of Nations in the end uh, as a result of opposition by some members of the Senate. Uh, and so uh, the efforts to uh, gain what you might call replace a territorial empire with an institutional empire uh, had to wait until the end of the Second World War. But at that time, U.S. power was on. Uh, rivaled, and um, whereas unlike at the end of the First World War, the U.S. didn't really have to share uh, influence. It was in a position to impose uh, its uh, its view of how world affairs should be uh, run uh, after the Second World War, and it chose to do so by setting up a whole series of institutions in which the United States would have a special and privileged uh, uh, place. And the most 
The best known examples of that are the IMF and the World Bank, where the US even today is the only country which has a veto by virtue of its um, um, uh, voting, uh, the weight of its uh, voting power. And another one of the institutions was, well, the United Nations uh, itself. And how do we look at that? Was the UN uh, part, largely part of the American imperial project? Was it a way that they were a vehicle that they might use to non-militarily manage uh, other countries? Very much so. I mean, remember that the UN... Uh, in 1945 had something like uh, 50 members, of which uh, 20 were Latin American republics and which could be expected to follow the lead of the United States. So that together with uh, Canada and a number of uh, supportive uh, countries in Europe, the, U- uh, the U.S. was guaranteed a majority of the, uh, of the membership and was able, therefore, to control uh, many aspects of uh, of of UN affairs, uh, but even more important, of course, was the uh, Security Council. Now, in the Security Council, in order to gain the participation of the Soviet Union, which was an important uh, strategic priority for the United States at that time, it had to grant, uh, had to share the veto, if you like, uh, with the Soviet Union. Of course, it also had to grant the veto to uh, the other permanent members of the Security Council. Uh, United Kingdom, uh, France, and China, which at that time, of course, was uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government and was therefore considered a safe and reliable pair of hands. So uh, the United States, um, uh, if you like, could rely on the support in most areas of uh, four of the five uh, permanent members wielding the veto. And the only one that it had to be uh, concerned about uh, was uh, the Soviet Union. But such was the dominant role of the UN in uh, the U. Uh, sorry, such was the dominant role of the United States in the United Nations, including in the Security Council, that it never actually used its veto until 1970, whereas the Soviet Union had to use it uh, on many occasions in order to uh, protect its interests. Since 1970, the US has used its veto far more often than any other country. And this is, if you like, a reflection of the retreat from empire, the ebbing away of U.S. power, particularly by comparison with what it was in uh, 1945. And to look at uh, the European project, the European Union, uh, you know, that process began in the 1940s uh, and 50s. And there's some people that classify the EU as an empire. In fact, uh, MEP Guy Verhofstadt recently made that statement, as well as uh, the uh, European academic Wolfgang. I can't remember remember his uh, recall his last name, but he he describes the EU as an empire. Um, how much of that was part of uh, the construction of the EU, part of the U.S. imperial project? Because I think I think his name is Alan Sked, who published uh, research that you yes. know, half of the funding for the EU came from the CIA and State Department. So, I mean, would you consider it part of the U.S. imperial project? And not, is it now becoming its own sort of standalone empire? Or how do we look at that? Well, it's very interesting because uh, the EU project, uh, or rather the European project, because it wasn't the EU at that time, the European project emerges at the uh, height of the, uh, at the beginning of the Cold War. 
And so uh, the U.S. attitude towards it is very much determined by uh, the Cold War and the need to provide a bulwark in Western Europe against uh, the Soviet Union. Remember that at this time, communist parties were immensely large and powerful in Italy, France, and a number of other European countries. Uh, obviously not in West Germany, not in the United Kingdom, but in France and Italy in particular, they were the largest uh, parties in terms of membership. And uh, if uh, there hadn't been electoral fraud in Italy in 1948, almost certainly the communists uh, would have come to power. So the, for the United States, it was... Um, a bit of a no-brainer that the European project was the way was the way to go in order to uh, combat uh, uh, communism in uh, that part of the world. If there hadn't been a Cold War, I think the United States might have been very ambivalent about uh, European integration because it threatened to create an alternative center of power. And now, of course, that the Cold War is over and... Uh, Russia, the modern Russia, doesn't play the same role that the Soviet Union played uh, before 1990. Uh, there clearly is an ambivalence on the part of the United States towards the European Union, and this is most clearly manifested in the case of President Trump, who quite clearly would like to see a weaker European Union uh, with countries like Britain uh, leaving it in order that it can't uh, threaten U.S. interests in different parts of the world. Uh, whether the EU is an empire, uh, that, of course, is something that can be debated. It shouldn't be ruled out. And certainly, I, I can tell you, many uh, small countries in the world who think of the EU as an empire because they are bullied and pushed around and uh, ignored and uh, pretty badly treated or uh, uh, have their arms twisted in order that the Europeans can get their way. So in that respect, the EU certainly does uh, behave uh, uh, like an empire. But the EU at the moment, of course, doesn't have an army. And so it lacks uh, that crucial ingredient in projecting imperial power, which is uh, hard power. Uh, the kind that the U.S. has in abundance and which uh, other empires in the past, such as Britain and France, uh, also had. Well, that was my next question. Recently, French President uh, Macron gave an interview to The Economist just a few days ago where he stated, uh, I think he said that NATO is brain dead or something to that tune. Um, and recently, we, we've there's been a lot of this talking up of a European army or European defense force do you think in the future that NATO, uh, the eu may shed nato uh, in exchange for its own european defense force i think it will happen i think it's inevitable in fact nato should have disappeared as soon as the cold war ended because its whole purpose was uh, to provide uh, mutual defense in the case of a possible uh, soviet attack and since the soviet union doesn't exist and since Russia clearly doesn't play the same role now as the Soviet Union used to play in the past, there really hasn't been any justification for NATO, in my view, uh, for the last uh, nearly 30 years. Uh, but, of course, it's very difficult for institutions to abolish themselves. It's much more common for institutions to reinvent themselves. And NATO reinvented itself 
as a body that would exercise power outside the theater where it was supposed to be operating i in europe and so we've seen nato exercises uh, or operations in all sorts of places uh, including for example libya uh, where uh, it really has no business uh, to to play so uh, it won't be the Europeans who pull the rug on NATO because there are too many of them who have a vested interest in its uh, survival, particularly the East European countries who still see Russia as a, as a, as a threat. But it will probably um, uh, 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 come to an end because of uh, lack of uh, support from the United States. And uh, it may be the case that uh, future presidents are not quite as hostile to NATO as uh, President Trump. Uh, but I think the direction of travel is pretty clear. And I'd be very surprised if NATO is still around in uh, 20 or 30 years' time. But if NATO has ceased to exist, then obviously the Europeans will look to have uh, some sort of uh, European a defense force and not just uh, lots of tiny little national armies. Uh, I just had a quick question on Brexit. I mean, I know we can talk on that all day, but only just in, in relation to, I guess, the uh, the British or, or, or the EU or American empire, do you see what's happening with Brexit um, as a result of or, or in any way influenced by any of these empires, British, uh, EU, or American? Yes, very much so. There's a, there is a large element of uh, imperial nostalgia in uh, Brexit. And although it's very uh, controversial to say that, uh, I am absolutely convinced uh, that uh, a lot of this is to do with uh, uh, a hankering after a mythical empire which no longer exists and which is viewed today in a way that it never actually existed in the past. It's seen as a sort of great benevolent force that was uh, a force for good in the world and that somehow or other Britain needs to uh, return to that. But of course, the difference is that this time, were Brexit to happen, and obviously we still don't know whether it will happen, but were it to happen, uh, Britain would very quickly find itself not... Uh, at the head of a new uh, British empire, but as a client state of the uh, US empire, which is uh, a very, very different situation to be in. Especially if, as you describe in your book, it's a US empire that's in retreat. And I wanted to get to that, which uh, is something that, that in the latter part of your book, you get into detail. Um, we've previously interviewed Johann Galtung, who has this, who predicted the to the year, I think, the, the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union 10 years ahead of time. And he has his own set of indicators of internal contradictions which predict uh, imperial collapse. You write that the US empire is primarily retreating or shrinking because it is losing its informal or institutional power, uh, the root causes being in, uh, internal, not external. And also we see that Americans no longer view America as great or exceptional. You consider the four strands of anti-imperialism as key to this retreat. So what are your views on American exceptionalism and the decline of um, this sentiment of exceptionalism uh, being a clear indicator of imperial retreat? Well, there are, of course, uh, so many factors involved in this imperial retreat 
that it's hard to know uh, where to begin. I suppose uh, the obvious place to start is uh, with uh, U.S. economic power, because uh, it's uh, not surprising that the U.S. Uh, share of the world economy has uh, uh, gone down as other countries such as China and India have grown uh, much faster. But what I think is surprising is how quickly China has replaced the United States as the world's largest economy when you measure it according to uh, purchasing power parity exchange rates, which give a much better idea of the uh, size of different economies. Uh, China's already the world's number one exporter, regardless of uh, uh, what exchange rate you, you would use and um, uh, pretty close to being the world's number one importer. So uh, a situation that uh, probably no one uh, really could have imagined in 1945 has uh, has now come about as a result of the spectacular growth of the Chinese economy in the last uh, uh, 40 years. So that's the first thing. Um, But the second, of course, is the nature of... uh, economic growth in the United States in the last uh, 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 45 years, which has brought about this extreme degree of inequality, leading to the stagnation of uh, wages and salaries and uh, household income uh, for so many people in the United States. So the fruits of growth, and there has been growth, of course, and technological change and innovation and all that, but the fruits of all that have gone to a very small uh, proportion of the U.S. population, and that has created a sense of resentment. And I think one of the most important things in discussing empires, not just the U.S. empire, is that they really only work if the citizens feel that they are benefiting, even if the subjects are not. In other words, during the time of the British Empire, there were subjects in places like India who were clearly uh, losing out in terms of uh, the way in which the imperial project worked. But the citizens of, uh, uh, of the British Empire, i.e. the British citizens, were doing pretty well. Uh, and that's how empires can keep going for long periods of time. The citizens are being rewarded regardless of what happens to the subjects. But the problem for the United States is the citizens of this empire, i.e. the, the, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, nationals, uh, they in a large part have not benefited from uh, the operation of this empire in the last uh, uh, 45 years. And so that has created a resentment which has then manifested itself in many ways and most recently in the election of uh, Donald Trump. Now, the next, the next point I would make is this, that earlier on we talked about how empires can't function without the support, conscious or unconscious, of huge numbers of influential NGOs. And there has been a sea change in the United States with regard to the role that these NGOs play. And if you take the case of the multinationals, I make the point that whereas the U.S. empire was never more than semi-global, at no point, uh, even at the height of its powers, was it a global empire. It was never more than semi-global, and now, arguably, it's not even that. Whereas the multinationals have become global. And for them, the whole world is their oyster, and they have to operate in virtually 
all countries of the world. And so they can no longer align their interests so closely with the U.S. state because basically they're seeing the world differently. The U.S. state is clinging on to power in in a shrinking uh, part of the globe, if you like. The multinationals, the most important ones, are seeing the world more and more in global terms. And um, that, I think, will remain the case regardless of what happens in terms of this uh, uh, dispute between China and the U.S. uh, when it comes to their economic relations. You allude to a global future divided between the U.S. and China. Is China copying the U.S. empire's post-World War II playbook through the Chinese Marshall Plan, if we can call it, the Belt and Road, as well as its rapid creation of national, regional, and international institutions? Um, Are they doing what the U.S. has done, and how are they faring, do you think? I wouldn't yet call China an empire. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons for that. And that doesn't mean that it couldn't become an empire later on. But I think the first is that you cannot understand modern China without understanding what they call the century of humiliation from 1842 to uh, 1949 during which time they saw themselves, the current rulers of China, saw themselves as being the victim of imperial intrigue, uh, particularly uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century, when many imperial powers, including the United States, uh, basically uh, exploited Chinese weakness and uh, humiliated uh, the country. It started with uh, the first uh, opium war launched by Uh, United Kingdom against China, and it obviously ended with the triumph of uh, the Chinese Revolution in 1949. So they have a much stronger sense of anti-imperialism than than the U.S. did in 1783, for example. It's deeply embedded, it's deeply felt, and so uh, China would be very uncomfortable about, uh, at the moment, adopting the sort of norms of uh, of uh, of uh, imperial uh, trappings. The second thing I think we have to remember with China is that it believes strongly as a matter of principle, and it has demonstrated this on numerous occasions, in non-interference in uh, other people's affairs. Their argument is, don't interfere with our internal affairs, we won't interfere with yours, which is why... China has absolutely no problem about having good relations with Zimbabwe or Venezuela or wherever it is, because they regard it as not their business to uh, try and uh, change the way in which internal politics is carried out. Now, having said that, having said all that, it is, of course, true that when you have the world's largest economy and you're the world's largest exporter, uh, you are, and you have a huge uh, uh, current account surplus, and you are exporting capital uh, all over the place. You are bound to exercise an influence uh, over other countries, uh, which puts them in a subordinate relationship uh, when it comes to international power politics. And a very good example of that, I think, is the uh, recent. Uh, condemnation of uh, 
China's treatment of the Uyghurs uh, in the UN General Assembly, uh, where it was uh, condemned, but 53 countries uh, voted uh, with China. And that, I think, gives you an indication of how uh, things are changing, because I don't think those 53 countries necessarily agreed with what China has been doing in terms of re-education of the Uyghurs and all that sort of thing. I think they were more uh, aware of the fact that they needed Chinese goodwill in order to sustain their uh, economic model. So China is in danger, I think, in the future of uh, adopting some of the uh, practices of empires even if I wouldn't go so far at the very moment to call it uh, an empire. Your thoughts on the Thucydides uh, trap that Graham Allison has written about? Do you see in the near future any danger of uh, something like a third world war breaking out? No, I think this is an overworn uh, um, uh, parallel. I think uh, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, actually. Um, uh, because, of course, uh, we have a, uh, a rising power and a retreating power. But if you think back to the rise of, uh, of the U.S. as the uh, foremost global power and the retreat of the British Empire, uh, uh, beginning um, uh, at the end of the... Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, that was conducted without uh, war between uh, uh, the United States and Great Britain. You have to go back, uh, you know, another hundred years, really, to the War of 1812 to have a situation where uh, the, um, uh, the the rising power went to war with the uh, retreating power. And of course, Britain wasn't a retreating power in 1812, so it was simply a war between two. Uh, uh, powerful uh, empires. Now, I think uh, China will be very careful. Uh, they have studied this uh, Thucydides um, history. They know the history of Athens and Sparta uh, very well indeed, and they will make sure that uh, if a uh, confrontation were to happen, it would happen on their terms. And they're a long way from being able to uh, dictate the terms of any uh, military confrontation. So I think it's extremely unlikely that they would do anything uh, that provoked uh, a war themselves. Uh, of course, if they were attacked by the United States, they would defend themselves with everything that they've got. But I think um, also from the point of view of the United States, it's now far too risky for them to uh, attack China in a, in a direct uh, uh, confrontation in the style of Pearl Harbor or something like that. Uh, if they were ever to have done that, they would have had to have done it uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Now I think it's uh, far too risky. And of course, China is a nuclear power. So uh, the implications are just uh, too awful to uh, uh, even you know, consider. We've interviewed cultural historian Morris Berman uh, a few times who has stated he believes President Trump uh, will accelerate um, the decline of U.S. empire. I believe you b have the, the say the same thing, and you classified Trump, uh, President Trump, uh, in your book as a neo-imperialist. What are your thoughts on it, President Trump? Well, uh, uh, like everybody else, I, I have my my views. But before we come to that, 
I, I would like to just stress something I do state in the book, and that is that I never talk about the decline of the U.S. empire. I talk about the retreat. And the reason I do that is because empires uh, rise and fall, uh, but nation-states can go on forever. Uh, just look at Iran, for example, um, uh, which had an empire for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but which is now a proud nation-state uh, and certainly not an imperial one. So if it's handled correctly, it is perfectly possible for the U.S. empire to retreat uh, indeed, it's clearly happening. But for what emerges, i.e. the nation state that emerges, to be actually stronger, not weaker, uh, than the one that it replaces. Uh, it all depends why the empire is retreating and how it's uh, uh, carried out. Now, as we said earlier on, uh, in my view, the main reasons why the U.S. empire is in retreat are for internal reasons. And I don't want to repeat what I said about that earlier on, but clearly I see the election of President Trump as a manifestation of that retreat for internal uh, reasons. Trump's base, Trump supporters, are not interested in military adventures overseas. Uh, clearly they don't want to see the United States humiliated, but they don't want to see wars of aggression such as were carried out by previous presidents, including uh, President Obama. And so uh, the empire is now retreating. Uh, the acceleration, sorry, the, the retreat is accelerating under uh, President Trump, and I'm sure it would continue to uh, accelerate if he was uh, re-elected. And I think it will uh, continue to accelerate, actually, regardless of, uh, of who wins the next election. Um, Trump himself of course, it's difficult to say he has a clearly defined ideology, and he would certainly uh, not consider himself being the agent of uh, uh, an empire in retreat. And I do characterize him as a neo-imperialist because he's certainly not an anti-imperialist. Uh, he believes that uh, the United States should be dominant in space, for example, uh, which is the language of an imperialist, not of an anti-imperialist. And um, he's used such crude uh, bargaining techniques with other countries, such as uh, Mexico, that you have to say his uh, language and behavior and modus operandi are very much that of an imperialist. But clearly, because he is unwilling to use uh, military force, he's a different kind of imperialist to uh, Obama or Bush or any of the others. And that's why I call him a neo-imperialist. And in this way, I try and disengage uh, the neo-imperialist Trump from the white supremacist Trump, who clearly is the one that many people in the United States focus on because he brings with him uh, a racist uh, discourse and a attitude towards uh, non-white peoples, which is utterly objectionable. But it seems to me that's almost independent of his role as a neo-imperialist uh, overseeing the retreat of the uh, U.S. empire.
One of my last questions is interesting. Also, in your book, that you state that you don't believe uh, the American Empire. The and that's why I stressed it: American Empire, not the the American Republic, but that the American Empire won't see its three hundredth uh, anniversary. And I just have a fun question: uh, Do you think we'll ever see? So, the British and the American Empire, perhaps, as you state, were semi-global empires, uh, pro probably in in history, uh, the ones that have achieved. Uh, the, the most or largest influence, do you think we'll ever see a truly global em empire? No. I think uh, the sun is setting on empire and a good thing too because it was always a very uh, unsatisfactory way of conducting uh, global affairs. Uh, once you... Um, Uh, realize that uh, empires bring with them a lot of baggage, particularly racist baggage. And we move into uh, a current world in which we now understand that notions of racial superiority and so on are absolute nonsense without any basis in science whatsoever. It becomes very difficult to see how it makes sense for global affairs to be conducted Uh, or left into the hands of empires, because if you do, it will just re-energize uh, all this um, racist uh, baggage that 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 is associated with empires. So we are slowly going to have to edge our way towards different ways of uh, running world affairs, different forms of global governance. And in that, uh, global and regional institutions are going to have to play a very big and slightly different role to the one that they've had in the past. Uh, there will be um, clearly need for a United Nations, a reformed United Nations, but there will also be a need for uh, all sorts of regional institutions, provided that they cannot be dominated uh, by any one uh, single power uh, and that is going to be uh, the uh, the tough uh, if you like agenda that uh, countries not just the United States are going to have to contend with in the next uh, 20, 30, 50 years Is there any additional or final thought that you'd like to leave us with? I think the, the one that uh, perhaps I should uh, emphasize is the anti-imperialist tradition in the United States. I, I devote a whole chapter of the book to this, and I think it's worth remembering that throughout this long period of U.S. empire, which is now, you know, 250 years, there have always been those who opposed it. Not just, I'm not talking about people outside the United States, I'm talking about people inside it. And I talk about them in four different ways. The first were the anti-expansionists. These were the people who thought that by taking on more territory than the 13 colonies who controlled, the United States would lose its soul, if you like. It would be like uh, Faust and Mephistopheles, and that somehow or other the purity of the, uh, of the Republic would be um, uh, uh, undermined. Um, A lot of their language is rather naive, 
and so on. But the, the idea was a right was a good one. The idea that if you keep on expanding the territory uh, outside of the uh, federal government, then you will end up by uh, recreating the imperial conditions that. Uh, uh, were fought against in the case of uh, the British Empire. So they were the first. And then you have uh, what I call the anti-militarists who have been important right up to the present time. These are the ones who resisted the uh, war of aggression that uh, uh, President Madison launched against Canada, which led to the war with the uh, UK in 1812. It was very important in the Mexican-American War, and that quote you gave from uh, Colonel Hitchcock is a very good example of that. Uh, very important, obviously, in Vietnam, and uh, and that tradition uh, continues right up to this day, and it's a very, very important one. Then I spoke about the anti, uh, uh, or sorry, the isolationists. That's the uh, people, many of whom, of course, weren't really isolationists. Uh, but there is an isolationist tradition, and, and in some ways, Trump supporters, if not Trump himself, uh, draw upon that, which is that the United States is at its best when it doesn't interfere in other people's affairs. And that's a, a long-running uh, tradition um, that uh, uh, dates back to uh, uh, the uh, early 20th century, if not uh, before. And then finally, we come to the most interesting one, which are the anti-exceptionalists. These are the ones who actually challenge the notion that the U.S. is exceptional. Myself, I've never believed that the U.S. was exceptional. For me, it's just another empire, uh, a very interesting one in some respects, not so interesting in others, but I've never thought of it as exceptional in the sense that it's a unique uh, um, uh, country with... Um, characteristics that we have never seen in history before. No, I've never believed that. Now, what I think is interesting about the anti-exceptionalists, particularly uh, who are found particularly among the young, but not only the young, is that they are also challenging this idea of the United States as being, in some sense, exceptional, and that they are beginning to see it as a normal country, which uh, behaves abnormally in much of the time, but nonetheless is not gifted with any particular characteristics that would allow it to, uh, A, say that it's exceptional, and B, therefore behave in a way that other countries uh, are not allowed to behave. And I, I think that growing sense that the U.S. is not exceptional is so important because it is what ultimately will lead to the transition of the U.S. empire into just another nation-state. And if it's handled correctly, and if it's done in a democratic and peaceful way, could ultimately lead to a United States that is much happier, if you like, in, its, in, its, in itself, in its non-imperial skin. I suppose I might be one of those uh, young anti-exceptionalists. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Bulmer Thomas, for your excellent work. Uh, this has been a lengthy interview, but I think it's been worth it, and I hope uh, listeners enjoy it, and, and I encourage them to purchase the book, Empire in Retreat. It was published last year, uh, and you can purchase the physical or digital copies. Uh, you won't regret it. Muchas gracias por la entrevista. 
gracias y estoy muy impresionado con la diligencia que tú has dedicado a la lectura de este libro. Gracias.